Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Aronax podcast. My name's Craig Eason. I'm the editor of the Fathom World news site and host of this podcast. Many of you have been following the various developments relating to the decarbonisation of the shipping industry through what we've been writing on Fathom World and what I've been talking about with various guests on this podcast. Now, a quick reminder, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Aronex podcast and go onto my website and subscribe for my irregular or once every fortnight newsletter to get some of the updates about the transition or transformation of the ocean and maritime space. Now, with COP26 literally next week, I've brought with me into my virtual studio two guests who have just uh, co-authored or part of a range of co-authors of a very large report um, on the transition of the shipping industry. One of them is Domagoj Baresic, and he's going to tell me if I've got his name wrong. And the other one is Alison Shaw. Hello, and hello to all of your listeners as well. So you got my name completely right, which is really good. A really good start to the podcast, I must say. So I'm a research associate at UCL, so the University College London Energy Institute, and I'm also a consultant with a consultancy company associated with UCL called UMAS. And so I've been with uh, UCL now for a better part of six years, just over six years, working on decarbonization of shipping. And my speciality or what I concentrate on in my research is understanding the transition pathways in shipping. So really understanding how do we go from the current fossil fuel based model of uh, the shipping industry with heavy fuel oils, with marine diesel oils and so forth and transition away to zero carbon fuels in the future. What are the policies involved? Who are the actors? What are the socio-technical challenges and so forth? And this is what I've been doing since I've joined UCL. So this is what good because we're going to come back to a lot of those points, I think, as we go through this uh, through this episode. And Alison, please, who are you? Well, how do you follow that? <laughs> a lot of the same, actually. I am also part of UCL as a research associate and also a consultant on the UMass, the related company side, and Unlike Domagoy, I joined only about seven months ago. I work on projects related to decarbonisation policy, both at a national and international level. And my kind of specialty is to follow the debates and discussions that happen in the IMO area. And prior to this, I spent 18 months unhappily in the finance sector. And before that, I was studying a PhD uh, focus on the development of regulations to reduce CO2 emissions from ships. And that is pretty much me. Now, it's probably not coincidental that you've issued this uh, report called a Strategy for the Transition to Zero Emission Shipping. It's not a coincidence as COP26 is just around the corner. And shortly after that, we've got MEPC 77 the 77th meeting of the Marine Environment Protection Committee at the IMO. So this, this paper, Domagoy, it's it's looking at transition pathways and how the industry as a whole, but not just the industry, the whole plethora of other sectors that we call that sort of broader maritime stakeholder group, how it all can transition to this zero emission shipping. Could you tell me in a nutshell, what's the summary of this report? 
that we can decarbonize shipping, but it can be done through multiple different pathways, but it has to start soon, i.e. now. That's what we're trying to say. That there's multiple pathways to decarbonization, but it can happen quite, uh, but it has to start as soon as possible. There's a lot of detail in this in this report, and I know it, uh, it's pulling together a lot of other papers that um, yes. have come out of UCL. And this, this is actually a report that partly goes with the uh, Getting to Zero Coalition as well. So I have to mention that it's the Getting to Zero Coalition, Global Maritime Forum um, and other partners that have been part of this report. But there's been a lot of work going in with other papers that have in turn led to content that's gone into into this report. But one of the things that struck me here is is this need to work in coordination with each other as we move forward, because you've specifically not ruled out any specific pathway here. You haven't ruled out any fuels. You haven't ruled out any way to go forward. You've, you've sort of left it sort of to say, this is how industry could be moving forward, but this is what we need to consider as, as we do that. But when you, when you look at that, you've also I've got a phrase there, which is right at the start of the summary. If anybody wants to look at the whole report, it's 122 pages long. But luckily, they published a 10 page summary for decision makers. Start with that, because I'm only halfway through. I admit I'm only halfway through the, the actual report itself. But on that first page of the summary, um, one of the objectives of this is to weaken false narratives across industry actions and national, regional and global policy making. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Correct. Well, uh, first of all, to come back to your previous point, you are completely right in the sense that we intentionally left uh, multiple pathways open to decarbonization. So that was intentional. I'm actually understanding that there are certain uns many uncertainties still left in the policy space, in the technological space, in the innovation space. And taking into account all of those uncertainties, we feel it would be unwise to say this is the one pathway that shipping will take. But having said that, we have a wealth of knowledge in the shipping industry as well as in understanding previous fuel transitions to know what are some of the likely pathways that can be taken and what are some of the unlikely ones that we have to have to rule out. So 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 we, we are making statements here about what has to happen and what can happen and what realistically cannot happen. And that brings me to this issue of false narratives that we always hear. I mean, there's many different narratives in the shipping industry, and we feel some of them uh, perhaps uh, should be clarified when uh, when we're discussing decarbonization, especially now ahead of COP26, ahead of more important discussions at MEPC about how to take shipping forward, what policies to actually create, what regulations to pass. It's important to understand, first of all, one of the narratives I would say is this idea that no action can be taken at the moment. Uh, with regards to uh, zero emission fuels, with regard to scalable zero emission fuels, because there's not technological maturity yet. So how do we choose which one we go, want to go for? And what we're trying to say here is there are multiple pathways, but, uh, but the research development pilot projects and R&D in these pathways has to start now and has to scale up far more rapidly than just talking about them in theory and waiting for a first mover to come from somewhere else. So this is one of these issues. Another one, another one also is uh, this idea that we should concentrate on 
energy efficiency, operational efficiency, or what we can do now, because that's what we can do. What we're trying to say here, and, and a whole section of the report actually discusses this in valuable detail, is the issue that this has to happen now. We have to do everything we can with regards to energy efficiency. We have to do everything we can to operational efficiency, everything we can with regards to making the entire value chain of the shipping industry more efficient, more sustainable, and more functional, but that has to happen in tandem with the development of these uh, scalable zero emission or zero emission fuels. So it has to happen in tandem. It's not about doing one, waiting for the results and seeing what happens later. And then I guess finally this point is what we're trying to emphasize is that what's happening in the IMO is incredibly important. It's it's a fundamental part of what has to happen. This discussion is 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 key to 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 how decarbonization in shipping will take place. But having said that. Uh, many different actors are also have to be involved and many different actors and their actions uh, on their own merit and uh, in their own regard will also be fundamental. And these actions can in certain regards be taken independently and have to be taken as soon as possible. So I would say those are some of the main points. Well, I was going to say that to, to Alison, when we're, when we're looking at the, uh, the, the way that the whole industry has got to move forward, there's been a lot of focus on the IMO, but there's also I mean, both positive and negative, of course. It's moving too slowly. It's got a huge task. Not all of the delegations that come into the IMO are singing from the same hymn sheet. There's a lot of comparisons, again, with uh, what goes on at the UNFCCC, with what goes on at the European Union level, what goes on in, in regional levels. Could you elaborate a little bit on this, please? Because within this document, one of the things that I did see, and it, it struck out, and I've seen this referenced already, is when it comes to the first movers, when it comes to the ways that the industry is going to decarbonise as a whole, uh, you've, you've got this graph that alludes to certain sectors being able to decarbonize before other sectors. You've also got this, this graph, this, this map that shows that there are certain routes. So in other words, vessels, even large vessels that are on A to B shuttle routes would be the first ones to actually, um, be targets for decarbonization because that would be easier to get a, two nations to come to an agreement or three nations to come to an agreement. So bearing that in mind that you've got the graphs that point to certain vessel types, and I, I would I would suggest that some of those are very small vessel types initially um, and could be very regional or coastal shipping, and that global map that says vessels that are on A to B, A, B, A, B routes are, are, are the way forward. That strikes to me that there is going to be a lot more sort of regionalization or even sort of discussions with between two member states. But at the same time, we're alluding to this goal at the IMO that the IMO has got to try and achieve. So, Alison, putting condensing all of that long kind of comment into into one question, though, how do we equate what we're doing on a regional level with what we need to do internationally? Well, first of all, I think it also what you're asking links back to weakening false narratives or perhaps we could call them misleading narratives. The idea that we need to wait for a perfect policy to come out of the IMO, we need to, to take that and move away from that because the IMO has a very complicated process that needs to happen on a certain time scale and to wait for a perfect policy is really going to undermine the urgency with which we need to act. So we fully recognize and respect of the IMO policy and especially in certain phases in the transition, for example, phase two and phase three. But for now, what we need, 
And what we're seeing already from industry is one, a willingness to act and two, investments in pilot projects, getting technology ready, spreading knowledge. I'm seeing it all the time here in London right now. GMF are having their summit and there was a lot of sharing of where projects are at on an individual level. So we need to let this happen naturally and support it without encouraging any entity to sit and wait for policy. It's not going to come anytime soon, but it is really important in the end. And I also think that part of our report is to gain a little bit of comfort in the uncertainty. We are not going to get um, one perfect plan in place before we start. We need to act and we need to learn as we go. And also, I think that there is another narrative around, and you've touched on this in, in your question, one size fits all with fuels. We absolutely need to look at things and see that there's different regional requirements. And that's one of the things we're doing with the first mover routes and breaking it down into more geographical and ship types. We're trying to move away from this granular detailed debate on which fuel is going to be the solution. That's not the real way we need to think about this. We need to start looking about routes and just getting things in place right now rather than trying to solve it first and act later. And what about the the, the question then about how with these with these projects, with these first movers, and you, you alluded to the funding element um, the financing. Um, the, the this report references the uh, the two trillion dollars that are needed um, within the fuel production side of things, as well as shipping, because it's two trillion dollars to actually bring the fuels into the industry as well. What about, what about the sort of financing angle here? Not so much at the moment. We'll come to the to the the financing of, of shipping, but the financing to create the the fuels that we're going to need for this and how we share that those fuels with the shipping industry how does a shipping how does the shipping industry get access to the fuels how do those fuels become um green because i think there's there's a reference in one in one part of the report there's about 180 million metric tons of ammonia produced annually most of that is produced using fossil fuels going back then alison is how do you see the policy from the IMO and from regions actually encouraging that finance, that investment in the fuels, that shipping has got there, and at the same time, shipping itself begins that transition? So you're talking about everything happening together, but you're also asking shipping to move <laughs> along with shoreside industries as well. The first thing I think that, um, and we're seeing this right now, is a call for clarity of ambition at a policy level, at least from the IMO side. We do have more ambitious policy on the table. We have the suggestion or proposal of the EU to extend their ETS over shipping. And so what we're seeing is that we need, and where the dialogue is heading is, we're going to really need a basket of measures um, that is going to tackle this from a variety of directions because we have to create a demand within shipping for new and alternative scalable zero emission fuels. And we also need to stimulate the supply, but in quite a supportive way. 
So one way to look at that is, of course, the debate around market-based measures and one on the table is perhaps a levy. So you're looking at putting a price on carbon, which is going to hopefully occur, encourage the transition to start. And in creating revenues, these can be recycled back into shipping. They can go to climate mitigation. All of these debates are very much in the early stages at a global level. But we're trying to focus on something that tackles demand and supply. And when you're able to use revenues for subsidies and support, you are supporting the transition happening at both ends. And I think that's one of the key things for policy. But at the same time, there is dialogue around the use of fuel mandates um, to provide a kind of unequivocal signal that we really need to move away from certain fuels. It's not just about a price, it's about the, the whole transition. And that's kind of where things are right now, that a basket of measures facing demand, supply and tackling the problem from different aspects will be the stimulator of the transition. We are not requiring policy alone to stimulate the transition, hence the dialogue on first movers. But, yeah, that would be my answer. You used a, a, a phrase that um, a kind of new phrase, but kind of self-explanatory to a point, uh, scalable zero emission fuels to talk about what is it? It's, it's, uh, it's fuels, obviously, because none of the fuels here that we're talking about are really available in the volume. So it's the, the ability to scale up them and the zero emission fuels. Um, so we've talked a little bit about the scalability and the need to scale up here. But Domagoy, can you just go through this definition again of uh, zero emission, particularly when you're talking about life cycles? I keep on seeing it, it popping up and I see different organisations having slightly different interpretations of what they mean. Uh, first of all, when we're talking about life cycle emissions, it means uh, taking into account uh, all of the emissions involved in the production and usage of the fuel itself. So upstream emissions and operational emissions involved in the production of the fuel. So you could have a fuel that has zero operational emissions, such as gray hydrogen. You're basically not producing any CO2 by burning gray hydrogen, but that hydrogen was initially produced in the upstream aspect of the market. It was produced by basically using a steam reformation of natural gas or even using some coal power, electricity or so forth that actually uh, emitted CO2. So the net effect of that is zero. The net effect of actual decarbonization in this case is zero because you're not actually having any benefit compared to, to uh fuel that's that's burning greenhouse gases at the moment. So 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 that's the aspect of that. Uh what I would like to say here is and there's interesting aspects of the report that discuss this in terms of narratives is how do, how will future policies within perhaps the IMO or a national level affect what fuels will become uh, scalable and what fuels will become important. So at the moment what the IMO does is it mostly focuses on operational emissions of a fuel. And if this is to remain the case, if we're discussing operational emissions only, obviously this is not good for the environment. But the, what, 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 what's important from the perspective of the fuel is if this remains the case, is then some fuels might become more competitive in the future uh, than we might uh, think of otherwise. So you still could have a scenario where you have fuels that are operational zero emission, but otherwise aren't. In other scenarios, you might have fuels that have to be 
uh, zero emissions throughout the entire life cycle. And an interesting point here with regards to this uh, definition is this aspect of scalability. And this is quite important. So as you, as you rightfully mentioned, every fuel we're discussing has to increase in production. But, uh, but there's one thing about saying what is the volume of the fuel we have at the moment and how much uh, volume we might have five years from now. And another aspect about saying which of these fuels are realistically scalable. And we're saying some of them are more easily scalable than others. Hydrogen-based fuels, with all the challenges that are mentioned in the report, they have a pot potential for scalability, whereas some biomass or biofuels might not have that same potential for scalability because of different issues involved with where they're produced, how they're produced, and what the sustainability challenges behind that uh, as, as well are. And just coming to, back to one point you mentioned previously about infrastructure, which I think is incredibly important to make, is uh, the, the $2 trillion figure is, is at one end of the range. And in this report, we do discuss a range of annualized capital investment figures going all the way from just above 1.2 trillion uh, to just below two trillion dollars, depending on, on different types of scenarios and different types of capital expenditures. So, so there is a range uh, again as well, depending on how you look at it. You, you, you alluded to the sort of the geography, the geographical context of here, here, and uh, in, within the report, I have seen the word equitable uh, turn up, and recently there was the IMOs. Um, event looking at how the developing countries can be part of this journey. And I, I've seen a report, um, I think it was produced by UCL, which is looking at how hydrogen production from some of the developing countries is um, a potential uh, bonus for them in some respects. Some, a lot of the uh, developing countries are, are rich in sunlight and wind, so they've got a potential, if they've got the infrastructure and they get the funding to create the uh, the capability themselves to kind of be part of the bunkering infrastructure or the fuel infrastructure in the, in the future. So, Alison, could you could you just tell me a little bit more about how you see from a sort of a, a legislative or a policy perspective, the role of the developing countries, the uh, the small island developing states, the least developing countries, least developed countries, how you see them in, in this picture, in the context uh, of this report then? Well, to pick up on the term you use, equitable transition, I would say right now is a fairly nebulous and undefined term, and yet we absolutely need to keep it in our dialogues. And it is becoming more widespread to speak of a just and equitable transition. And I think what underlies this is that we, we, the collective, <laughs> do not want to have decarbonisation further exacerbate historical inequalities, especially since climate change is being experienced by many small island developing states. They are almost at the forefront of the effects. And we know from the IPCC that these effects are being felt all over the world in different ways, but they are some of the most vulnerable to climate change. And so we must recognise that. And when we're creating policy around this, that understanding has to be there and then on a more practical level to not exacerbate historical inequalities we do want to see decarbonisation as an opportunity for a new future where we do equalise on a global level and there are these opportunities out there for developing countries to be engaged in this fuel transition to be providers of renewables and 
um, to have the bunkering infrastructure. And you can see that, you know, in, in our report, it's quite visual. You can see the role that they could be playing. And in the policy realm, we need to be listening to each other, understanding the different needs at play and incorporating them. And whether that means as a baseline, addressing disproportionate impacts, which of course will be an IMO goal, or even going beyond that to defining what we mean by equitable and just. But this all has to be part and parcel of the transition for it to truly be an effective and successful transition, I believe. <laughs> it's uh, just finally, because I'm, we're running out of time and being a, a large report, there's a lot of other points we could really go into here. But uh, one, of, one of the elements that I wanted to just end on is this ability to achieve or demonstrate. I, th I think let me let me put it this way. There, there, there's comment in the report that the industry can demonstrate an intention to reach the Paris targets um, by having a five percent switch to uh, zero emission fuels by 2030. Have I got that right? That it would, and that would demonstrate that the shipping industry is on the right trajectory to achieve the 2050 goals. Could you elaborate on that a little bit there, please, Domagoy? Because I, I, what do you mean by that figure and how do you see that being achieved? Uh, the figure itself is based on a benchmark. We feel it's quite important to say 5% is a level that we feel is challenging to reach in 10 years time, actually eight and eight, nine, but is doable, is realistically doable. It's a challenge that's worth aiming towards. And it's a challenge that if you look at the models of adoption of new fuels or technological change, there's different phases through which different adoption mechanisms go through. And we talk about these emergence phases, diffusion and reconfiguration. And this First phase of emergence is the phase that we are basically beginning in now. And if we set ourselves this, this goal, it's almost like a moon landing goal 10 years from now that we will reach this 5%, 5% level. It's a goal that in order for it to reach, you have to develop fuel maturity of one of these zero emission fuels. You have to develop technolo technology. You have to develop draft regulations and you have to develop uh, proof of concept uh, on, a, on a scalable level. And all of this is something that is realistic to do, to do in 10 years, albeit challenging. So this is, this is where the 5% figure comes from. And we see it as happening through two uh, specific ways. Number one, the countries that can go ahead, that can march forward independently within their domestic shipping fleets, are actually doing the R&D, doing the investment and doing the scale up that they can actually adopt these types of technologies and fuels in their domestic shipping fleets. And number two, uh, seeing where the opportunities lie to have actually strong liner shipping routes or first initial pilot zero emission shipping routes, either at a domestic level or at more of an international level. And I mean, here we discuss different different segments in the report, which is quite well explained in the report in detail about what some of these routes might be, where they might be and what the goods that can be shipped actually are. But I would say I would say this this is a. This is a goal that can actually put us in a position that by 2030, then we can go up and scale up to where we have to be by 2050. I'm just curious in, in terms of that's 5% of the fuel mix that the shipping industry uses. Yes. Have you got a ballpark figure of uh, how many tons of fuel that might be? 
Uh, it depends on what fuel it is, because the 5% is based yeah. on the energy contents of the fuel. So on the overall energy content. So it depends on, on the fuel we're talking about, and then we can we can discuss and calculate times. I think the, some of these figures uh, have been discussed in some of the previous work we've done, and and uh, and it, within the ballpark, it, it should be discussed. Yes, yeah. but uh, but it depends it depends on the on the type of fuel. But it, it would be basically talking about already a significant number of vessels operating in, in this regard. It depends on how many. Uh, domestic, uh, how many, uh, how much of this comes from domestic shipping? But it's talking about some of the uh, some of the uh, nation states that might adopt uh, these types of fuels, domestic shipping, having a significant proportion of their domestic fleet running these fuels. Let's say by 2030, going into the 20 or 30 or 40 percent by by the end of the decade. And Alison, just to end on that on that similar point from an IMO and a policy point of view. Um, kind of Dumagoy alluded to the sort of the national and the regional developments. How does that then fit into that international policy? Have, have you seen the uh, the temperature or, or the enthusiasm or the commitment or the levels of belief change within the world, in the policy world that you've been kind of researching over the years? I think that anything that happens out with the kind of global policy level is obviously going to feed in because that's that's we talk about the IMO as if it's a singular entity, but of course it's a collection of the member states, the countries of the world. And so naturally knowledge, practice, sentiment and ambition feed from the external into the debates and discussion of the IMO. And I think that we need to get away from thinking that there is an existing tension between national action right now and IMO policy, and indeed in their own documents, the IMO have said that they encourage member states to initiate early actions to facilitate reduction of GHG emissions from ships without awaiting entry into force of measures in the IMO context. So that gives you an idea of why there needs not to be a tension between national measures and the IMO policy that will hopefully be forthcoming, but that it can all come together very harmoniously and that these different levels are just needed. And of course, we also have domestic fleet emissions counting for a fairly significant amount of overall emissions. So why should there be any need to stall on a national level just to wait for international policy? Over the years, I do see a movement in sentiment um, at the international policy context, talking now openly about market-based measures and more positively about the transition overall. So I do think that we are seeing a shift and that it is coming from external discussions feeding in and that there is this change in sentiment and positivity around what can be done to transition shipping. That was Doctors Alison Shaw and Domogoy Barisic from the University College London and the University's Maritime Advisory Service, a consultancy known as UMAS. UMAS has been working with the Global Maritime Forum based in Copenhagen, Denmark, and it's getting to zero coalition. And the report Domogoy and Alison were talking to me about Looking at the pathways to decarbonisation and the reasons why action now is needed can be found on the GMF website as well as on the Fathom World website. 
So that's it for today. Please remember that you can subscribe to this podcast, listen to the past two years of episodes, and it would be great if you could like, recommend, and even pass on this podcast and the episodes to friends and colleagues who have an interest in the changing shape of the maritime and ocean industries. And also take a look at the Fathom World website where you can read stories about the transition and transformation of these industries and you can sign up for my occasional newsletter too. And to end with a Jules Verne quote, the sea is the vast reservoir of nature. The globe began with the sea, so to speak, and who knows if it will not end with it. Until the next time, goodbye. <laughs>